Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning. Welcome to Teddy Talks for Monday, April 6th. 2020. I'm Joe Wieg and I'm coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, today with an April 6th salute to Texas, perhaps most appropriate because many of the uh, cattle and many of the cowboys uh, came up the uh, Great Western Trail. Uh, those were Texas Longhorns very often that were out on the prairies of Dakota Territory. April 6th, 1905, President Theodore Roosevelt spoke in Austin, Texas, first to the state legislature, uh, then outdoors to an assembled audience in the uh, shadow of the Capitol building, and then uh, briefly at uh, the State University at Austin, uh, now known, of course, as University of Texas and Hook'em Horns. Uh, today uh, in history, of course, uh, April 6th, as we alluded to last week, April 6th, 1917, the United States declared war on Germany. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt would uh, probably have said, finally. Uh, he wanted to go and serve in World War I, and uh, his son Quentin, who would perish over the fields of France June 14th, 1918. It was Quentin who said, it is rather up to us to do what Father preaches. On that point, uh, uh, questions and comments that came in, one from my dear old friend, John Garvey, uh, those days go all the way back to Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois. Uh, John inquired about the children, the family, and uh, there was an inquiry about Alice. And might we tell some stories of Alice? Uh, here's a famous photograph of the Roosevelt family taken at Sagamore Hill in Oyster Bay, Long Island uh, in 1903. President Roosevelt and the family looking so lovely. Uh, the uh, young lady in the back with the fancy hat. That is uh, Alice Roosevelt, uh, eventually, three years later, married to Congressman Nicholas Longworth of Cincinnati, Ohio, Alice Roosevelt Longworth. She would outlive all of the other siblings. Standing next to uh, Alice and behind President Roosevelt, that's Ted Jr., uh, again, one of the four boys who fought in World War I. And yes, Ted Jr. gave his life uh, in World War II the only general to go to shore on D-Day uh, led his troops at Utah Beach. General Omar Bradley, when asked what he thought was the, the bravest action he'd seen in World War II, he said Ted Roosevelt at Utah Beach. 
uh, coming back then next to uh, Alice and uh, between Alice and his mother. Uh, that is Kermit Roosevelt. That is the second oldest child Kermit would fight in World War I. Uh, in both World War I and World War II, um, uh, Kermit joined the British forces early to get into the war. World War I fought in Mesopotamia and uh, uh, would go on to uh, uh, serve in, in uh, Europe in World War II and meet his demise in World War II, uh, serving with the United States uh, Army in Alaska. And sadly, Kermit Roosevelt, uh, the boy who hunted in Africa with his father and explored the River of Doubt in Brazil, Kermit took his own life with his service revolver in 1943. And we'll, we'll discuss that. Uh, next in age is Ethel, uh, sometimes called the good daughter. Uh, Ethel would uh, serve as a nurse in World War I, rushed to Paris, as did her husband, uh, uh, the doctor, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Derby. Uh, they were great citizens of Oyster Bay, Long Island, even after the passing of Mrs. Roosevelt, who, of course, is pictured there. To get to the younger boys, here we are down, uh, the older boy in black. That's Archie. Archie fought in World War I. Uh, it was he who cabled his older brothers, uh, Ted and uh, Kermit, in Europe. The old lion is dead. Uh, when uh, President Roosevelt died at home January 6, 1919. And little Quentin, Quinnikins, um, Quentin, uh, he left Harvard uh, to join the uh, Army Air Service, later the Army Air Corps, uh, trained at Mineola so he could fly over Sagamore Hill and dip his wings to say hello to his mother. It's that boy that uh, died at the age of 20 in France for uh, French freedom. And I'll tell you the story of uh, Quentin and our playing for Quentin in 2018, a wonderful uh, program where my friend Austin Arts portrayed young Quentin Roosevelt. Uh, Thursday's program on April 9th, uh, that's, uh, that's Archie's birthday. And so we'll hear about uh, Major Archibald Roosevelt. Uh, the only American soldier to our knowledge who was uh, wounded in World War I, declared 100% disabled from his wounds, and uh, over 20 years later would fight in World War II, fought in the Solomon Islands. Uh, there's a ridge there where there was action called Roosevelt Ridge, and it was there that Archie was uh, wounded in his lower extremities again, exploding ordnance. Archibald Roosevelt, the only soldier to our knowledge, declared 100% disabled from wounds in World War I, subsequently declared 100% disabled from wounds in World War II. So we'll celebrate the children and the family as we move on. I'll find uh, a way to get uh, Alice Roosevelt uh, into, the, uh, into the mix. This uh, day in history as well, um, April 6th, 1905, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany uh, the uh, Emperor of Germany received an invitation from the Sultan of Morocco uh, inviting uh, Germany to participate in a conference on the future of Morocco. Uh, the April previous, uh, the French and English had entered into the uh, uh, Entente Cordiale, uh, the uh, cordial understanding of how to split up Morocco. Uh, the German Kaiser was furious. Uh, there was saber rattling. Uh, he'd gone to Tangiers just previously and made a speech uh, in the days previous to the uh, invitation from the Sultan. Uh, the subsequent first and second Al-Jakiris conferences 
uh, held in Algeciras, Spain, uh, uh, delayed perhaps World War One uh, and uh, Roosevelt administration with a uh, an observer, a delegate uh, to the uh, to the conference uh, had some influence behind the scenes. I like this one in 1909, Admiral William Perry, the great explorer and friend of Theodore Roosevelt, made the North Pole. I'll leave it to all of the scientists to debate uh, who made it first and when and where they stood. Uh, but uh, he did uh, go to the North Pole and his ship on this and on a previous uh, effort to uh, make it uh, to the uh, North Pole, the SS President Roosevelt. The ship that took uh, uh, Perry's party uh, to uh, to the Arctic to explore, uh, uh, to get to the North Pole, was the SS Roosevelt, uh, which would in World War One uh, have service uh, for the United States Navy, would work for the Bureau of Fis Fisheries uh, up in the Northwest, and eventually made its demise, and perhaps appropriately so, uh, was grounded after uh, uh, repairs as a ferry ship uh, and a tugboat uh, uh, was eventually uh, succumbed to the shore in the mud uh, down in uh, in Panama near Cristobal uh, in Panama in 1937. The SS Roosevelt met its demise. 1905, the tour of the South. It's during this tour that President Theodore Roosevelt in Little Rock, Arkansas, speaks out publicly against lynching. Uh, he's a bit trepidatious about going down to Texas. Uh, he'll make an allusion here to people working together where parties don't make a difference. When Theodore Roosevelt addresses the Texas state legislature and the officers, uh, the constitutional officers of Texas, the entire Texas Senate is Democratic. The entire Texas House, save one Republican, uh, one prohibitionist, and one independent, all the other 130 or so members are Democrats. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, wrote to John Hay that he was surprised at the wonderful uh, reception that he received, the hospitality, the kindness. It was on this trip that Theodore Roosevelt would go on to hunt uh, with Quanah Parker, the Comanche Indian chief, and uh, uh, catch him alive, Jack Abernathy, who would uh, be a U.S. Marshal in Oklahoma Territory and whose boys uh, would make a great ride on horseback all the way from Oklahoma uh, to Washington, D.C., and greet President Theodore Roosevelt upon his return from Africa and Europe in 1910. We may have to tell this thrilling story of the Abernathy boys, and if you homeschoolers are looking for something to, uh, uh, for your children to read, get them the book about the Abernathy boys. Uh, the boys were roughly nine and five years old when they rode horseback, unaccompanied by an adult all the way from Oklahoma uh, to the nation's capital and to New York City. A bit of context, again, notes on what will be read today. Three speeches, all mostly uh, brief compared to what I've done elsewise, and thank you for your patience. The um, uh, president uh, uh, references uh, the governor, Mr. Speaker, Mr. President Pro Tem. Uh, the governor was Samuel Willis Tucker Lanham. And uh, I, I apologize uh, at not having the names of the speaker and the president Pro Tem. Uh, they were certainly Democrats. He does allude to ex-minister Terrell early in his comments with regards to railroad legislation, and that's Alexander W. Terrell. Uh, he was appointed by Cleveland, uh, and when we say ex-minister, uh, that's because we didn't have ambassadorial relations uh, with the Ottoman Empire. Instead, uh, Alexander Terrell, that Texan, was named by uh, Grover Cleveland to be envoy extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary. 
Uh, and uh, I would love to be appointed to such a position just to be able to, to hear those words. Of course, uh, the president uh, alludes to Sam Houston, Stephen Austin, Davy Crockett. If you don't know who those people are, something tells me most uh, tuning in now or later in the day uh, will understand those characters. And I'll have more to say about them tomorrow when we celebrate the 1903 return to Medora of Theodore Roosevelt. Those are brief remarks. I've gone also then to April 7th, uh, 1905, the day after these remarks were made, Theodore Roosevelt went to San Antonio, may I say returned to San Antonio, uh, where the Rough Riders uh, trained in part before heading to Tampa and to their destiny in Cuba. And so those remarks uh, uh, tomorrow about the Alamo, uh, perhaps we'll uh, make sure that everyone's up to date on Sam Houston, Stephen Austin, and Davy Crockett. When I get to the last remarks, the uh, president will refer to the president, and that's the president of uh, the State University of Texas at Austin, now known as University of Texas. The president is William Lambden Prather. Uh, he is a graduate of Washington College. I think himself, he came from Norfolk, Virginia, uh, and he graduated from Washington and College. We'll know that now as Washington and Lee in Staunton, Virginia. Uh, the president of the university then was the former Confederate uh, uh, General Robert E. Lee, and hence the college taking his name in addition uh, after his time, Washington and Lee. Uh, W&L uh, General uh, might uh, correct me, perhaps the, the school's name was actually changed uh, uh, prehumously rather than posthumously. It's interesting that when uh, Lambden uh, Prather uh, was at uh, Washington College, Robert E. Lee would tell the students there, uh, that the eyes of the South were upon them. When Lambden went to the University of Texas, he was fond of telling the students at the University of Texas that the eyes of Texas were upon them. In 1903, uh, a student and a band director put together a, a little song put to the tune of uh, I've Been Working on a Railroad. Uh, if you're attending a University of Texas athletic event in the future, you'll hear uh, the University of Texas Longhorn students and fans uh, sing uh, the uh, the song, The Eyes of Texas Are Upon You. Uh, I promised last week, or thought last week, we might have no future singing, but uh, the eyes of Texas are upon you all the live long day. The eyes of Texas are upon you. You cannot get away. Do not think you can escape them at night or early in the morn. The eyes of Texas are upon you till Gabriel blows his horn. Uh, today's uh, uh, today's uh, reading is dedicated to some friends, but first that, uh, that song was played at Lambden's funeral. It was also played in 1975 at the funeral of our first lady, uh, Claudia Taylor Johnson. Maybe you remember Lady Bird Johnson, our first lady. The Eyes of Texas were played at her 1975 uh, funeral. So Teddy talks, Teddy in his own words. Uh, and, that's, uh, and that's from April 6, 1905, uh, uh, the first speech to the legislature of Texas. Governor, Mr. Speaker, Mr. President Pro Tem, Senators and members of the House of Representatives, and all of you, men and women of Texas, those whom I am so proud to call my fellow Americans, 
No president of the United States, no good American proud of his country, could enter this capital and stand in this hall without feeling a certain thrill of pride in his citizenship and in the history of the country's past. This building in which we are now is not only one of the largest, but one of the most beautiful of its kind throughout the world. It is eminently fitting that so great a state should have so fine a capital building. There are one or two things that I would like particularly to say in this chamber and to the members of the Texas legislature. I received a copy of the resolution passed by your body, introduced, I understand, by ex-minister Terrell in reference to the passage of the Interstate Commerce Act. I wish to thank you most heartily for what you did. I think, Governor, Mr. Speaker, and gentlemen, that the longer our experience in public office is, the more we realize that at least 95%, if not more, in importance of the work done by any public officer who is worth his salt has nothing whatever to do with partisan politics. The things that concern us all as good citizens are infinitely larger than the matters concerning which we are divided one from the other along party lines. Fundamentally, our attitude in our foreign affairs and in reference to foreign nations must in the long run, if we are to be successful as a people, be based upon certain common sense rules of conduct, the identical rules upon which every self-respecting citizen must base his private actions. This is equally true as regards all questions dealing with capital and labor, and especially with those dealings with the great aggregates of capital usually to be found in corporate form through which so much of our business at the present day is conducted. It is essential in dealing thus by legislative action with corporate wealth, or indeed with wealth in any form, that we remember and act upon certain rules, simple enough and commonplace enough to state, but not always easy to act upon. Most emphatically, we cannot, as good Americans, bear hostility to any rich man as such, any more than to any poor man as such. My experience has been that the man who talks over loudly of his hostility to corporate wealth cannot be trusted even to antagonize corporate wealth when it is wrong. Let us be moderate in our statements, but let us make our deeds bear out absolutely our words. With this preliminary, I would like to say in brief just what my position is as regards the particular question with which I had to deal and as regards which the Texas legislature took the act action I so much appreciate. On the whole, there have been few instruments in the economic development of the country which have done more for the country than the railroads. I do not wish in any shape or way to interfere with the legitimate gain of any of the big men whose special industrial capacity enables them to handle the railroads so, so as to be of profit to themselves and of advantage to all of us. I should be most reluctant, I will put it stronger than that, I should absolutely refuse to be a party to any measure, to any proposition that interfered with the proper and legitimate prosperity of those men. And I should feel that such a measure was aimed not only at them, but at all of us, for any attack upon the legitimate prosperity of any of us in the long run 
sure to turn into attack upon all. With that proviso, as to which I ask you to remember that I mean literally every word, let me further add that the public has the right, not a privilege, but in my view a duty, to see that there is on its behalf exercised such supervisory and regulatory power over the railroads as will ensure that while they get fair treatment themselves, they will give it in return. The proper exercise of that power is conditioned upon the securing of proper legislation, which will enable the representatives of the public to see to it that any unjust or oppressive discriminating rate is altered so as to be a just and fair rate and is altered immediately. I know well that when you give that power, there is a chance of it being occasionally abused. There is no power that can be given to the representatives of the people which it is not possible to abuse. As everyone knows, the power of taxation, which must of course be given to the representatives of the people, is the power of death, for it is possible to kill any industry by excessive taxation. There must be a certain trust place in the common sense and common honesty of those who are to enforce the law. If it ever fails, and I think it will, uh, if it ever falls, and I think it will, to my lot, to nominate a board to carry out such a law, I shall nominate men, as far as I am able, on whose ability, courage, and integrity I can count. Men who will not be swayed by any influence whatever, direct or indirect, social, political, or any other, to show improper favoritism to any railroad, and who, on the other hand, if a railroad is unjustly attacked, no matter if that attack has behind it the feeling of prejudice of 99% of the people, will stand up against the attack. That is my interpretation of the doctrine of the square deal. I want to say just one word more on an entirely different subject. I have always taken a very great interest in the National Guard in this country. It is our pride that we have the smallest possible regular army. There is not another first-class power, there is not a second or third-class power in the world that has not got, relatively to its population and wealth, a very much larger regular army than we have. We do not need anything but a small regular army. We need and must and shall have the very best regular army of its size that is to be found anywhere. We do not need a large regular army because of the possibilities of our people in raising volunteer troops. Those possibilities are largely conditioned upon the excellence of the National Guard. Since I have been in Texas, at almost every stopping place there have been members of the National Guard, companies of the National Guard out to do duty in connection with keeping the crowds in order and preventing any trouble of any kind, keeping the whole proceedings orderly and proper. I have been immensely struck with their soldier-like efficiency. It is only what I ought to expect. When I was last in Texas, I was engaged with certain others in raising a volunteer regiment. And as I think I know a good thing when I see it, I got just as many Texans as possible in that regiment. Your whole history, from the days of Austin and Houston and Davy Crockett, right to present time, shows what fighting material the average Texan makes. 
but I do not care how good the material. It is not going to amount to much if it is not given a chance. It is a most important thing for all of us, if we desire to keep the regular army small, that we shall have the militia, the National Guard of the several states, kept up to a proper point. Last year, I am happy to be able to say that at the maneuvers of the regulars, your Texan troops did admirably. I have been told again and again how well they did. I want to congratulate you upon the excellent law for the administration of the National Guard that has recently been passed by the Texas legislature. With that law backed up by a sufficient appropriation to make it available, you can count upon having the Texas National Guard as a model for the National Guard of the country. I feel very much at home here. I have been governor and I have served in the legislature, so I have a good deal of fellow feeling with all of you. I have had for a good many years to grapple with just about the problems you are grappling with from time to time here. And I know, as any man who has taken part in active work must know, how easy it is for the outsider to say that everything should be managed perfectly, and how difficult it is in practice to get even fairly good results. There is a heap of difference between the critic, the onlooker on one side, and on the other, the doer, the man who does the job. Outside of the Capitol building, Austin, Texas, April 6, 1905, having just made these remarks. Mr. Governor, and you, my fellow citizens, I have been particularly pleased to be greeted wherever I have gone by the great masses of school children, the children from the public schools and the children from the higher institutions of learning, state and private. It is a mere truism to say that the prime work of any state should be to keep up and raise ever higher its standard of citizenship. Texas has a right to be proud of its industrial development and of its wonderful natural resources, but I tell you the best crop for any state to rear after all is the crop of men and women. I believe in the future of Texas so heartily because I believe that you are steadily taking measures for the uptraining of the children for the uptraining of the generations that in a few years will take our places and rule the destinies of the state. No state can be great without paying the penalty of responsibility that comes with greatness. That is true of the nation. It is true likewise of the states that go to make up the nation. You have here in Texas a commonwealth which in area and diversification of resources already stands unequaled which in population and wealth will soon be one of the three or four first in the entire land. That means that besides feeling exaltation about it, you ought to have a very heavy sense of responsibility entailed upon you thereby. No man can do any work worth doing except at the cost of effort, of self-restraint, of forcing himself to achieve things. No state can do anything except by possessing just those qualities because the state is, of course, simply the aggregate of the individuals within it. If Texas fails in any way, the failure will be felt by the entire country, because its influence and its power are so great. There is no royal road to good government, and I think all those interested in managing your public affairs will agree with me that what we need in our public officials is not genius, 
not even brilliancy, so much as the exercise of the ordinary, rather commonplace qualities of honesty, courage, and common sense, the qualities that make a man a good husband, a good father, a good neighbor, that make it advantageous to have dealings with him in business or make it worthwhile having him as a friend. These are the qualities which are fundamental, which should be shown by the man who has to do with public life. And do not forget that each one of you here has to do his share in governing this commonwealth. It is not a figure of speech. It is the literal fact that in the United States, every man is a sovereign. Remember that the fate of the sovereign who does not do his duty is to get dethroned. And if the average man who is sovereign does not do his duty, he will get ousted from his sovereignty. If a man cannot govern himself, he will find a boss or someone else who can govern him. And then do not blame the boss. Blame yourself for not having the self-control, the resolution, the forethought, and the sense of civic duty which would make you do your full part in the work of governing this country. We will not lose our birthright of citizenship unless by our own fault. If the average man keeps his head and his wits, and if he takes a little pains, he will be governed just about the way he desires to be governed. If he is not governed that way, do not let him sit down and blame the politicians. Let him blame himself, for it is in his power to get any government that he seriously desires to have. My fellow citizens, together with expressing the exultation that we have a right to express about our country, we need to have impressed upon us a sense of our own responsibility of the shortcomings of which we are guilty if we do not rise level to that responsibility. It is a very good thing that we should gather together on state occasions, on the 4th of July, and at public festivals, and hear speakers say how big a country we have. But it is a better thing if we will go home and think over certain of the shortcomings that all of us have and make up our minds to remedy them in the future. What I ask of you, and what I most firmly believe you will give, is a patriotic perseverance in doing each his average round of duties, doing the duties both of private life and as a citizen in public affairs each day. Do not wait for some special time when heroism will be called for, but do unweariedly the humdrum work that comes to every man. If we will do that, we will find that the affairs of state will be settled as we desire to have them settled. There is no sitting at home finding fault with the way in which public affairs are handled, and then every four years, in a burst of animosity against some person, voting to turn him out. What you need to do is month in and month out, year in and year out, to do your ordinary political duties as those political duties come up. And only under such conditions can you get really good public servants. Let me say one uh, more word of warning. In public life, you will sometimes encounter a man who in, will endeavor to lead you to do something which down at bottom you doubt being right, which he tells you will be to your advantage to do, usually something that looks like wronging someone else. But the man who will wrong someone else for your advantage will, when the chance comes, be sure to wrong you for his own advantage. My fellow citizens, my fellow Americans, I address you here under the shadow of your beautiful capital of this great and wonderful state. 
with its heroic memories of Austin, Sam Houston, of Davy Crockett, of all the men who in picture or in statue are commemorated on these walls. And my strongest feeling is that proud though you are of Texas, you cannot be prouder of it than I am. One of the great and splendid features of our American life is that each American has a right to be proud of the deeds of every other American, no matter from what part of the country his fellow American may come. Your honor, your glory, are the honor and the glory of every man of our great country. All that is necessary for our people is that they should get to know one another in order to appreciate how slight are the divergencies and how vital and fundamental is the union among them. Concluding the day with remarks at the State University at Austin, Texas. The University of Texas, I mentioned I wanted to uh, dedicate uh, today uh, to uh, three of my favorite Texans. Uh, all met uh, while we were at the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee, though uh, the last of these three predates uh, Suwannee, uh, to John Swayze, uh, to uh, Rick Ward, and to Dr. Eric Love, who in his heart knows that he could be a great Sam Houston, uh, just the way that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, James Whitmore was a tremendous Will Rogers, uh, the way that uh, uh, the way that Hal Holbrook has brought Mark Twain to life, uh, the way that uh, uh, Fritz Klein and George Buss uh, and the late uh, James Geddes brought Abraham Lincoln to life, uh, the way uh, uh, Joe Wiegand does Theodore Roosevelt, and, and the way that Clay Jenkinson does Thomas Jefferson. Doctor Eric Love can bring Sam Houston to life, and I hope he'll do it someday. Uh, so. Uh, uh, on behalf of uh, myself and uh, everyone here in Medoria, Medora, a salute to Texas and uh, uh, these words for uh, the University of Texas, which, by the way, lost 10 nothing to the University of the South Suwannee, Tennessee in 1899. It is a great pleasure to see you. I only wish I had time to go through the university and to see a little bit more of you intimately. I believe there should go hand in hand two schemes in education. First, the education for all, the education that the public schools give, and then that higher training, not merely technical, but often academic, which of the utmost concern to the nation as a whole should be enjoyed by a certain portion of its citizens. Remember that there is only one way in which the ordinary college graduate can benefit his alma mater. He can benefit her only by doing such work in the world at large that a reflected honor will come upon her. Train yourself, specially in some one direction, to do some bit of technical work better than it can be done by anyone who has not had your training. Most of the students who are going to achieve success will achieve it by just working out to the best possible advantage some special course. You must show that you have in you the right stuff. What your college education has done for you is not to make you feel excused from effort, but to give you the ability to use your effort to greater advantage than you could otherwise have used it. The words of Theodore Roosevelt for you on Teddy Talks. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow. Bring your comments and questions. Thanks for sharing this with your family and friends. 
we have uh, much time, I think, to, uh, to still uh, separate ourselves from our gatherings. Very hard for me and my fellow performers to do. Uh, to my friends and family members that work in hospitality, uh, restaurants and hotels and bars, uh, how we miss that uh, conviviality that we've enjoyed there. We here in Medora are dedicated to uh, uh, opening up uh, when we're able to this summer to put on the wonderful Medora musical, the Pitchfork Steak Fondue, the Rough Riders Hotel. Uh, well, all of it needs help. So if you're uh, someone who would like a summer job in the beautiful Badlands, housekeeping is at a premium right now, and uh, the other uh, jobs of uh, everything from mowing the lawn to taking tickets and reservations to uh, serving uh, uh, breakfast, lunch, and supper, those kinds of things, uh, of course, require a lot of work, and, and uh, we've got volunteers who will be coming out this summer, but go to Medora.com. If you've got a youngster, if you yourself are looking for some summer employment, uh, go to Medora.com, look at the employment opportunities there. I'd love for you to join me here in Medora, North Dakota this summer, a place where Theodore Roosevelt said the romance of his life began. Come to Medora and I'll show you uh, why that's the case. I'll see you tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Mountain, 6 a.m. Pacific. And you can view this later either uh, at Medora ND or at Teddy Roosevelt's show. Uh, And uh, all the best, everyone, from Medora. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye.